Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today on Work in Progress, I'm so excited to share my conversation with a woman who is beyond inspiring. She's tenacious, resilient, and relentlessly dedicated to the well-being of women at large, Ms. Cindy Eckert. Cindy is a serial entrepreneur and highly vocal advocate for women, specifically in the areas of business and health. Over her impressive 24-year career in healthcare, Cindy created and sold two innovative pharmaceutical companies, Slate Pharmaceuticals and Sprout Pharmaceuticals. At Sprout, she forged a new path in women's healthcare by creating Adyi, the first ever FDA-approved drug for low sexual desire in women. After selling it for a billion dollars, only to see it shelved by the company that bought it, she fought tooth and nail to get it back and make sure it was made available for women against all the odds. She now mentors and invests in entrepreneurs with groundbreaking ideas through her investment fund, The Pink Ceiling. This pinkubator helps women do what Sydney has already done herself, achieve big success, take command in male-dominated industries, and truly change the world. On today's episode of Work in Progress, Cindy and I discuss what it's like to move around a lot as a kid, the importance of individuality in the workplace, and how the best way to change a problematic industry is to change it from within. We also explore the social conditioning of women around the subject of sexual pleasure and why female sexual health is largely overlooked. This episode is all about advocating for ourselves as women and demanding better. You'll want to share this one with every woman you know. I'm so pumped that we're doing this today. Thank you for joining me. Absolutely. I'm so happy. Um... Before we get into your work 
what you're doing in healthcare, what you're doing with the pink ceiling. I, I always like to go backwards with people a bit because so often when I sit across from someone and interview them, it's, it, it's about what they're doing in the world now, but I'm always curious where people started. So you, I've, I've read that you said that you had a bit of a nomadic childhood because your dad was with the state department and you moved around a lot. So where, where do you consider yourself being from and, Mm. and then how often were you moving? That is such a good question. Where am I from? Um, my joke to everybody is I live on an airplane, which is probably because I don't really identify with any one spot. I'm actually, my business is based in North Carolina and I've been here as long as I've been anywhere in my life, which is remarkable to me. But my original childhood, and I think foundationally, my roots are very blue collar. I'm from upstate New York, uh, Rochester, and um, you know, lived in a town where you were Irish or you were Italian. Your parents probably worked at the factory. And I had this incredibly adventurous spirit of a father who came home one day and said, do you know where the Fiji Islands are? And, you know, I did what every like suburban kid in the U.S. did. I ran into like my room and like spun the globe. And I was like, where is Fiji? Oh, it's the other side of the world. And my dad said, great, we're moving there. Which of course is such a natural transition from Rochester, New York, right? To the Fiji Islands. But there started my um, insane sort of childhood of having to pick up and move and move, which for sure, like as a kid, I was kicking and screaming and in hindsight was the most incredible experience and a real setup, I think, for what I have done career-wise. Mm. How often were you moving? I moved, every, I moved to a different school every year from the fourth grade through my senior year of high school. Oh my gosh. That's one, one hell of the new kid syndrome, <laughs> I can tell you. Whoa. So upstate New York, then to Fiji. Yeah. What are some of the other places that you went? Um, so I came back home to Rochester. We moved to Italy. Uh, we were in D.C. Um, so we bounced back and forth a little bit overseas and then back and forth. And then in my career, similarly, I've you know lived on the East Coast, the West Coast, San Diego, Seattle, uh, hmm. Philadelphia, you name it. It's fun at a cocktail party. I can usually find common ground because I've lived in the place <laughs> the person I'm talking to is from, which is pretty cool. That's so interesting. How do, how do you think, to your point about hindsight, you know, because as a kid, of course you're kicking yeah. and screaming. You want to stay home. You want to be with your friends. Yeah. But in hindsight, how do you think moving so much shaped you as a little girl and and through your teenage years, because every year through your senior year in high school, that's that's a formative time. Yeah. You know, I think there's a couple things. One, it got me very comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because you can imagine day one, you walk into the room, you're like the odd man out, you're standing on the side of the room, um, you have to observe the dynamic. And so I think one, it's sort of comfort you're going to be put in uncomfortable situations. How are you going to handle it? Um, I think it's made me good at observing and getting sort of perspective. And I think it allowed me to not be with any label. And if you think about that in our you know, formative years, you're the jock, you're the geek, you're the something. And because I never was part of any clique, 
I think I've gotten to be a little bit of everything and appreciate a lot of different points of view. Was there a skill you felt like you developed uh, for those first days? Was was there a, a way that you learned to move into those new rooms? Humor. I think that that was the skill is how do you, you know, how do you diffuse what can all be uncomfortable situations with a um, levity and with an ability to be self-deprecating? And I think that is the way that you can start to, you know, win friends. And, and you mentioned that you did all of this moving because your dad was working for the State Department. What, yeah. what were your parents like? What, did, what, did, yeah. what kinds of people were they and, and what are some lessons you think they instilled in you from a young age? So they're, um, they've made, they've have such a huge impression on me as do my two big brothers. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit. They met, um, in college. My mother is from the deep South. She's from Mississippi and, um, you know, very sort of picture the real feminine Southern woman. My dad is a New Yorker. Um, she was definitely a rebel to marry the New Yorker. <laughs> I, I tease that when we have family gatherings to this day, we need translators because they don't know what um, you know, both sides are saying. And I think they had a um, real independent spirit. And I say that because, and my brothers and I complain about this to the, like we, we have a, we, we figured out later in life that we all said the same thing, which is, wasn't it so frustrating when we were little and we would go to mom and dad for help, like help with homework, you know, whatever it was, give us a leg up. And it was infuriating because they would always give us the exact same answer, which was, we could say, what's, you know, the, what did this mean in this chapter about blah, blah, blah. They would say, what do you think? And again, at the time you're like, just help me. Like I want, I want to ace the science project. I want to do everything else. And I think what they were doing in a very like intentional way was cultivating independence of thought and saying, one, you're going to have to go figure, you're going to have to be resourceful in life. You're going to have to go figure it out for yourself. Um, And you should probably go ask a bunch of different people and appreciate all of their different perspectives in order to form your own. Um, so that's really, I think the way they answered our homework questions says a lot just about who they are and, you know, what they wanted to see, not only in me, but in my brothers too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that that's such an excellent question to pose back to a kid because really you're cultivating critical thinking skills. For it's, sure. Curiosity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's less about getting the answer right and, and more about what do you think? What do you believe? Yes. How does this make you feel? Yeah. What's yeah. your experience with this book or this yeah. place? Yeah. That's very I agree. cool. That's very cool. I, and, and my mom has been, you know, such a good force from a, the standpoint of always having been in male-dominated industries. You know, femininity to her was a real strength. Um, and I think that when I went into, you know, kind of classic corporate and the, the rules of engagement were, you know, suit up, pull your hair back, don't wear makeup. Um, my mom was always in my head saying nonsense. You know, you are who you are and that's part of your power. And so she, that, that Southern touch actually has been a really important one for me. Mm, I love that. And, and you're right, you know. So many of us as women have been cultured to think that 
our femininity is a problem in quote professional settings, you know? Yes. And and I think there really is something, no matter how you feel beautiful or you feel feminine, I think there's something really empowering about owning it, whatever your version is. And if your version is, you know, a blowout and a winged eyeliner or your version is, uh, you know, an androgynous like pantsuit, whatever, but whatever it is, own, own yourself. Like don't agreed. Don't try to shrink yourself to fit in, you know, with the boys in the room. Agreed. Mm. I totally agree. Owning it is such a, a big piece of it to me. And, you know, for me, it's very, um, sort of quintessential stereotypical. I do love pink. I've, I have always loved pink. Uh, if you look back in childhood pictures, I'm usually in pink. And the pink I recognized very early was perceived as a weakness, which mystified me because I saw it as a strength. And I think pink for me was some you know, flipping of a switch from underestimated to unapologetic. To your point in who I am and what I like and in not being willing to compromise that, and like you said, that could show up in any way. It could be that I love, you know, combat boots, that I love flannel, that I love orange, that I, whatever it is that we have, we assign these stereotypes to, you know, I think that instead of leaning away from them, we should go right toward those because that's what we actually should be addressing. I love the way that you own who you are and and you really both in conversation and by example, really lead and inspire women to take up space. Where did that come from? Is that something that you cultivated over time or or did you learn to speak up for yourself early on? You know, I would go back a little bit to the conditioning and maybe I wasn't even conscious of this conditioning but of my parents saying that, what do you think? And that giving me permission to say what I think and recognizing that that had value, what I thought, and that, in fact, I was being encouraged um, to do that. I really think it was probably a conditioning and a practice from a very young age that, you know, flexed that muscle over time um, that got me to a place where it, it, I would never consider why wouldn't that be valuable to share. And yeah, when you empower a kid, that has a ripple effect through the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. What, when you think back on those teenage years, what was, what was your first job? You know, where, where did you begin yeah. to be a career woman? <laughs> I, I definitely had the retail jobs and, um, you know, hanging up all the clothes left in the dressing room. And uh, that was probably, I wasn't, I wasn't particularly like a good babysitter. I will say, <laughs> I will say that was not my strength. I'm the youngest of three. Uh, maybe I just didn't, I, I didn't quite grasp the concept in the same way, but, you know, always enterprising. If I'm being honest, my very first job was that I had CK's Kitchen, um, my middle name, my middle initial is Karen, so um, Cynthia Karen. And I opened CK's Kitchen and would make my brothers pay me to go and get them food from the refrigerator and deliver it to the couch, <laughs> which I'm pretty sure was just 
A, the only way I could get my big brothers to play with me, but B, also a, a side hustle where I could make a little bit of money. Um, and so always like thinking of ways, I look back and I laugh. My brothers think that every game, you know, imaginary sort of game that we came up with, inevitably, like I would design it so that I could be the CEO of it. <laughs> but the, the real work and a paycheck from, you know, somebody else uh, came, you know, very early on, like the minute I could get my mom to like drive me to the mall and drop me off to have a job, I had a job. Mm. I really wanted that financial independence. So you were always entrepreneurial. When, when did your interest in science kick in? Um, you know, that was really a little bit of dumb luck. And I would have told you, you know, probably throughout school that I was a, you know, sort of English and social studies kind of girl and not the math and science. And when I was in college, I went to, it's funny, I ended up in D.C., um, for my senior year of high school, I was right outside of DC, and my criteria for college was I will not move. So I went to school because I moved so many years. I went to school at a small school in DC, and I had this wonderful business professor. So I knew I wanted to study business. I loved businesses, um, always had my whole life. What made them exceptional? Um, and she recognized that in me. And she would give me side projects and she would tell me, come back and tell me like, what makes this business special? What makes that business special? And on that journey, um, reading all of these magazines, I decided, well, I'm going to go work for the best. So I'm going to go work for Fortune's Most Admired Business. That was it. I just decided that's what I'm going to work for. Honestly, Sophia, it could have been like, it could have been, you know, aerospace. It could have been oil. It could have been anything at that moment in time. At the time, it happened to be a pharmaceutical company. It was Merck. And Merck was Fortune's most admired because of all of the innovation and everything else. And I went there completely on a business path. And when I got there, what was so fascinating is I didn't love necessarily how I got the business done, but I was captivated by what they did, the science and the difference it made in people's lives. And that really started my path from okay, I'm in an industry. I love what they can do. I don't love how they get it done. How do I chase innovation that makes a difference in people's lives? And while I'm at it, reinvent the way in which the business is, is run. And that was smaller company, smaller company, bigger mark, bigger mark, until I ultimately started one for myself. What was it that you were identifying that wasn't working? When you say, you know, you loved the innovation, you loved that a pharmaceutical company, I imagine, could create a medication that could save sure. lives. You know, that's huge. Totally. But what were you identifying as the problems? You know, where where were the holes in the in the boat? Yeah. Well, look, one was um, I'll be very selfish. They weren't listening to me. <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm I'm employee numbers. At, who knows at that time? Ten thousand one hundred. You know, I was the low man on the totem pole. So one was just environment and understanding that I was never going to thrive in a big environment in which I was a number. That I needed to be in an environment in which I was heard and could really feel like I was making a contribution. And what struck me and strikes me even to this day about businesses is that you know you get to a certain size and you think that the answer is to homogenize that you basically say to everybody, this is our way. This is how we do it. And what you're doing is you're 
beating the individuality out of everybody, which is really your magic. And once you make everyone conform to this one way, of course, businesses have to have policies and procedures, but you don't have to all be the same in terms of how you tackle the problems. And that's what really struck me is how do I find environments in which you're really given permission to show up truly as you and that all ideas are heard and considered and then the best idea sort of moves forward. And that was, that was like the difference between big and small. And that was the entire design for me uh, when I first started my first business that culture would come first and that would be the culture. So then how does your first business come about? What, what was the <laughs> so, pathway? You know, I think I had served a little bit of time. I actually had been in corporate for long enough that I felt like, you know, I had a track record that somebody would bet on me. I was very unlikely. Um, I got to tell you, like, I don't, I don't look the part um, to be in this industry. I don't think the way of most of my um, peers in this industry. And yet I thought, I'm in these environments in which, even still, even as I went smaller from Merck, you know, I'm in environments where I can make a bigger contribution, but I'm just not inspired. And how do I find people like me who are, you know, driven against their own sort of personal bar for um, success, but put them together, give them complete permission, tackle a challenge and see what we can do. And it's why I called my first company Slate. I mean, it was really clean slate. I'm doing it on my own damn terms. I'm going to be true to these, you know, eight things I wrote on a paper towel. And, um, and then I'm going to invite these other sort of misfits in and see what we can accomplish together. And that was the most rewarding thing. By no means was that business just, you know, a straight line to success. It was painful and, you know, I screwed up over and over again and I was learning how to run it from scratch myself. Um, but the people that were around me mm-hmm. and the environment and culture we had created meant that we were going to really sort of take on the world and win. I love that. And so you start Slate and what comes next? <laughs> Slate. So Slate was um, a, a four-year uh, rocket ship ride. Um, the first couple, very bumpy. And we built what was the second most prescribed um, product in sexual health among urologists. And while I'm in this space and I'm watching, you know, I'm running a company that solves a problem for men, a problem that we've solved for them 26 times, actually, um, by the number of medications available through the FDA. Can you walk the listeners through this in a little more detail? Because when you say sure. the the when you talk about urology in the field of men's sexual health, yes. what are we really talking about here? And yeah. what, what did you so what did you create? In, in my case, it was a testosterone. So it was at the time the only FDA approved long acting testosterone. If you think about the ways that we address men's health, we talk about the Viagra like drugs, Cialis, Levitra, all of these different testosterones, Androgel, Testapel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we have other products as well for Peyronie's disease. So I was in a field that I'm fascinated by. So here I am in sexual medicine, which is actually a really relatively young field. Like we might know the work of Masters and Johnson, but it's really a sort of a modern era. And I'm fascinated by it because 
It is something that affects almost all of our life experiences. And yet it's very shameful and taboo. And we don't really talk about it openly. And so here's here's an area of health that is sort of fundamental to our human experience that is often overlooked. So I'm in this field. It's still relatively young, um, even on the male side. And I'm, you know, part of what is this renaissance, I think, in, in addressing this aspect of, um, you, you know, humanity. And yet there's nothing for women. And I'm building this business, very successful. And I'm watching the science emerge that really tells us about the biological basis of sexuality for women. And every like company, deep resource, big company is running away. What, what do you mean by the science? When we talk about sexual health for both men and women, I, I yeah. imagine that there are scientific factors that are measurable. Sure. So when you're sure. talking about what you're seeing for women, and to your point, yep. there's 26 drugs for men, there's none for women, you're yeah. seeing the science behind women's sexual health. So. Yeah. What is that? What what are you able to observe? What are they able to measure? What are these companies running away from? So this is what was spectacular is we had brain scan imaging that basically shows how a woman's brain lights up or doesn't to erotic cues. So if you think in medicine today, probably in the last two decades, one of the biggest mm, innovations has been brain scan imaging, PET scans, functional MRIs, Mm. to help us understand conditions, if you will, of the mind, of the brain. Mm. And so put a woman in a MRI who totally happy, she has a normal ebb and flow of desire. None of us are on all the time. She's completely content with it. Put a woman next to her who was once happy, feels that something has changed and it's causing her really profound distress. Expose them both to erotic cues their brains light up totally differently, mm. like remarkably differently. So a and woman, so, that means that a woman who has what would be classified as low sexual desire or a low libido is actually yep. experiencing a difference in her brain, her brain A neurochemical effect, 100%. Wow. Which was so cool, first of all. Like the discovery, like it's, you know, this desire discovery was fascinating. But then to now see scientifically this incredible insight and have everybody be like, yeah, but. And the yeah, but that became so evident to me is, look, sexuality is complex. We, but it's complex for men and women alike, right? We walk into the bedroom with probably how we were raised, religion potentially walks in with us, the psychology of how we feel about ourselves and how we feel in our relationship. But by God, we walk in with biology, men and women alike. And it's very easy for us societally for something to go wrong for men and us go, oh, biology, we can fix that as witnessed by the fact that we had 26 different options to fix that. But if something goes wrong for women, we go, oh, psychology. We pat her on the shoulder. We tell her to take a bubble bath or just relax. Or and have we a glass do that of wine. <laughs> pervasively, mm. in, pervasively in health in general. That can be if she presents with a cardiovascular issue. That can be in a variety of ways. 
but my gosh, you better magnify that a thousand times when it's sexuality, because we are so sure that we think of men as just biological with one switch that turns on and off and women as psychological that requires all of this dial in. And yet we're looking at science that is revealing a biological basis and we're walking away. And really what boiled up in me was outrage. (laughs) I mean, of course. And it strikes me as I, as I hear you explain that, that, that people are walking away from a true biological observation and ability to diagnose. Yeah. And I, I wonder if it's because there's also so much just societal complexity around women's 100%. sexuality. You know, this this sort of Madonna whore complex, yeah. this how dare women be sexual, they should they shouldn't um, there, there, there's so much culturing around sexual shame for us around oh, a yeah. woman who likes sex must be a whore. A woman who yeah. is empowered in the bedroom with her partner is dangerous. It's risky. Yeah. It's scary. You know, we, we don't have a cultural conversation around women's sexual health, around sexual pleasure, around sexual That's desire. Right. We, we treat right. these things as though they're taboo and as, as though they're bad. But if we make women feel like their sexuality is bad and they don't feel empowered to make sexual decisions for themselves, I worry that not only are we disempowering women, but we're actually adding into the mess of sexual violence against women. Yes. Because rather than sexuality being this even playing field, it's it's been taught to women that they should hide it and men that they should do anything to get it. And obviously, you know, this is addressing yeah. heteronormative situations and I know there are far more, but you know, sure. For the sake of the conversation we're having, I I really I, I realize that as a 37-year-old woman, I yeah. am I feel a little shaky talking about this. You know, I'm like, yeah. oh God, we're gonna we're gonna talk about <laughs> sexual desire on the podcast. Yeah. It's like, what yeah. is that about? Why why have we been cultured to be like this? And how does our culturing affect us medically? Oh, majorly. There's so much great data on this, and, mm-hmm. and I appreciate you saying that because I, you're in the camp. I think people look at me and say, how do you speak about this so freely? And I think my strength is in the science. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a very black and white issue. Mm-hmm. We have learned something that is a spectacular discovery that is really a catalyst for conversation mm-hmm. and creating permission to have a vocabulary around our pleasure. Like, Think about it this way. If we were born after the you know, birth control pill came to market, whether we like the pill, ever took the pill, however we feel about it, we actually had a vocabulary to talk about it. And if I'm being really aspirational around Addie, it broke the door down around desire and pleasure that now we get to talk about it right down the middle. You know, not at the extremes, to your point, the Madonna and whore and all of these extremes at which we look at sexuality, but rather as a part of our life experience and something that, if it's not going right for us, deserves to be addressed. Mm-hmm. It's um, the societal narrative here is so, so strong. You think about it, you, you know, women will get their period probably in middle school and there will be incredible shame around it and everything shuts down. And we are completely looked at as reproductive beings 
you know, my radical thought is like, how do you go through a sexual revolution and stop at reproduction? And part of the reason in my mind that we continue a power struggle and this control around women's reproduction is because we, and by we, I do mean all of us women, haven't owned the conversation all the way through pleasure. Once you own it all the way through pleasure, all of that leaves the room. And to your point, which is such a good one, there's really data around the fact that if women can't, you know, talk about their body with the correct anatomical terms, if they're, you know, told to call it a cute name, you know, a vajayjay and all of that, the actual repercussion is they don't report violence. They don't discuss these things because they actually don't have any of the words and they have been conditioned to think that it would be inappropriate to bring it up. Hmm. Wow. That's huge because this cultural sort of denial of women's bodies and of Mm -hmm. our right to talk about our bodies and our right to enjoy our bodies again, ripple ripples into so many other arenas. I mean, I learned years ago um, that so many women don't ask their doctors questions. When women go to see the gynecologist, they don't ask questions. They don't accurately report their sexual experiences. They're embarrassed. 100%. And, and I think that was just such an aha moment for me looking to your point at some of the data. Data is what makes everything make sense to me. And yes, and when too. I looked at the data, I had to really acknowledge the ways in which I carry shame that doesn't make sense around my mm-hmm. own body, the ways in which I'm nervous to have some of these conversations. And then to know that the only way to begin creating a shift was to first start a shift with myself. Yes. And and you said something, you've you've said the you you said that this was a big desire discovery, and then later you you mentioned one of my favorite words, deserve. Women deserve Deserve. to live embodied. We deserve to take up space out in the world. We deserve to take Mm. up space in our bedrooms. We deserve to be in healthy sexual relationships with our partners and not to feel, again, going to the data, not, not to feel like we're supposed to look like women in this pervasive pornography, not, not to feel like we're supposed to be performative, but, it, yeah. but if we don't know how to talk about it, how do we get there? So mm-hmm. I, I love that you were able to look at the data and the science and then to see the absolute lack of conversation being had in the medical yes. field. Yeah. What did you do next? Because you said all these companies ran away from it. You knew that we needed to get a a drug that could help women's sexual health, that could address mm-hmm. this this neurological issue, this change yes. in brain chemistry. You know, we we talk an awful lot about antidepressants and mood stimulators sure. and whatever. We're not talking about it in this arena. Right. So what what happened? Well, I think that, I'll tell you what happened. I spent a year listening to women. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. I was watching all of this science emerge. I was watching companies run away from it. And I ran in and I thought, I'm going to just sit down with women who are dealing with this 
and hear it in their own words. And when I did that, I thought, my God, if I'm listening, so too is everyone else going to listen. Because here is what I have learned in science. Science gave us the answer a long time ago. It's black and white. It's, you know, we know that these, these are repeated studies. We see it over and over and over again. Then we do, you know, double-blinded placebo-controlled trials. We meet outcomes with statistical significance. Like the evidence is there. And yet it's remarkable to me that we can sort of turn a blind eye to evidence if we just put our hands over our ears. Um, and so the, the most, I think, satisfying part of selling off my profitable business in men, I always say that because there was a moment when, you know, my board looked at me and said, you're going to do what? No way. And I said, oh, like I'm doing it. Um, if we don't, no one's going to. And, and so we took it on. And, um, and the most delightful thing is that women got their day to come and tell their stories. And data is informed very differently through the lens of empathy. And once I have heard from a woman, and I haven't made a value judgment on whether or not this really matters, if she has more desire for sex or a healthier you know, relationship with her partner, um, once I hear it out of her own mouth, I have a very different perspective on taking that seriously. So that was really, you know, what came about was I took this on. Um, I did all the work in the very, like I said, geeky, you know, double-blinded placebo-controlled, the, the rules of engagement for what you have to do, the hurdles to prove basically, you know, safety and efficacy. I did that and the FDA turned me down. And when they turned me down, what they said is, well... The effect is modest. And so, and I thought, modest? Wait a minute. Women go from not having sex to having satisfying sex. They go from having mercy sex to having, you know, sex that they're really excited with with their partners four to six times a month. Whatever the outcomes, they have more desire. They have less distress. We meet all these outcomes. And when they turned me down, I was mystified. So an increase in a woman's sexual experience with her partner of four to six times more per month, which could go from zero to six, which is sure. a lot, they sure. were saying was moderate. Mm-hmm. What was interesting, so here's what I thought. Hmm. Modest felt like minimal, right? Exactly as you just interpreted it. My version is modest is meaningful. I, this is not like, you, t- you take something and all of a sudden, you know, you're going home with the next waiter that you think is handsome. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, the, the, the purpose of this is not nymphomania. In fact, you look at that. The idea is a restoration to a level that you were once happy with because you've got these, you know, neurochemicals back in a balance. It's allowing you to respond to sexual cues. And so, to me, there was, that was so underpinned with a value judgment on sexuality. And I would just say, you said this beautifully earlier about, you know, you making a decision that you are going to have to get comfortable enough to bring it up. I would say to anybody listening, just consider this for 20 years, 20, a little longer, you haven't turned on the radio or television and not been told that men's sexuality matters. Hmm. You've been told for 20 years even if it has been very like, you know, not at the top of your consciousness, but this message has been reinforced. All of these medications, everything that we hear, but never once have we said that about women. 
And so why would we, why would we bring it up? We're not ever even told that it matters. Wow. And what's really striking me in this moment is that I realize I don't, you know, I, I mean, maybe I do know, I was about to say, I don't think I know any (laughs) men who take any of those drugs, but maybe I do. And they just don't talk about it. But I've seen that Cialis commercial with the, with the older couple in the side-by-side bathtubs holding hands (laughs) for so long. I know the whole commercial. They're like up in Napa or something. They're they're on a hillside. It's beautiful. (laughs) They're holding hands. It's very cute. And, and it strikes me that there's always a woman in the commercial for the men's sexual health drug. That's right. But it's always about the man's sexual health. It's about his getting his desire back. It's about the couple getting their groove back because the guy can get an erection again. That's right. We're literally, we're always featured, but we're never centered. Yes, that's right. We, we are... So My mind pleasure, is exploding right now, Cindy. I would tell you pleasure is not, the messaging to us is pleasure is not ours to own. Mm. Pleasure is ours to deliver. Mm. And we set that up. And that has an incredible impact on how we feel in bringing it up. Um, and, and it's just incredible. I mean, it's, it's profound, the impact, once you start digging under the surface here. And I'm, and I'm struck by you saying that, that there is this really insidious, almost like uh, subconscious messaging that we're meant to deliver yes. it. Because you said something a moment ago that you were able during your clinical trials to yes. track a difference between women who had a, a low libido having what you, what you called mercy sex. Yes. And, and we've all heard the joke and we've all seen the comedians and everybody talks about how, you know, the woman's like, oh, I got to do this thing. And she's looking at her watch and she's like, baby, like I got shit to do. That's right. To go from that, again, culturally reinforced dynamic that we don't really want to do it, but we do it for them to yeah. say, a woman can take a, a medication that boosts her neurochemical activity in this way and then be enjoying her sexuality and having, you know, four to six really pleasurable sexual encounters with yeah. her partner every month, or an, in, an increase, as you said, in your data. Sure. And for a bunch of men at the FDA to say, what do we care? Yeah. Why are we supposed yeah. to care about this? Yeah. So again, our experience has never been centered to them. It strikes me that they are likely making decisions based on the thought of, well, you're supposed to deliver it. Why are we caring about your experience? Mm -hmm. Well, we can have sex whether or not we want it. Mm -hmm. Men can't, which is right. We we think of that around, you know, erection equals performance. If they Mm -hmm. can't get an erection, it's a national emergency. I mean, and I say that not even completely joking. Literally, if you look at the history of Viagra, Hmm. when it got approved, it was rushed through the FDA for approval. Yeah, didn't they approve it in six months? Six months. Six months. It took the first drug for women's most common sexual dysfunction six years. It took me six years. And by the way, I had three times as many patients worth of data. Wow which is not insignificant. And it's really about, you know, this valuing of men's sexuality, um, their pleasure, and, you know, this disregard uh, for ours. Mm. That's, that's deeply, and I don't mean to say they're not bad. You know, there's not 
bad people. They're wonderful, brilliant scientists, um, you know, at the FDA, uh, but they're human. Mm. And the human bias in sexuality is this construct. I mean, I, my parents all the time say this, and you've probably heard me tell this joke. My parents say all the time, could you have not done something in diabetes, Cindy? <laughs> and, and what they're saying is, you know what, if you're not diabetic, you actually don't have a point of view. But by God, when it comes to sex, pretty much everyone has a point of view. Mm. Mm. And what a crazy thing that the points of view are so skewed depending on gender. Mm-hmm. depending on the gendered experience. Because to your point, for the FDA to approve Viagra in six months, didn't it get an emergency classification? Mm-hmm. It was fast-tracked. So you have to apply for fast-track approval, which is reserved for medications that meet such an important unmet medical need that they would qualify to be rushed through. Mm. So we deemed that ED was such an important unmet medical need for men uh, that we rushed it to approval. Yet sexual dysfunction in women with three times as many patients, three times the data took... And identical populations of prevalence, by the way. So ED is men's most common sexual dysfunction. HSTD is the term for women's most common sexual dysfunction. That's the frustrating low libido we're talking about. Same prevalent size in the, you know, in the world, but look at how the past were treated differently. And it wasn't just that they turned me down once. I had three public meetings. I mean, what happened is when they, when they turned me down, despite the fact that we had met these outcomes, and when they said the benefit was only modest, I fought them. Um, How know, do you I do, do that? Take- How do you fight the FDA? <laughs> yeah, taking on the government for pleasure is the road less traveled. So there wasn't exactly a manual. Um, but I will say there's a mechanism by which actually the FDA, we all pay, right? Taxpayer dollars. And there's a program inside it called patient-focused drug development. What does that mean? It means that if there's something that you haven't solved, who should be at the center of the conversation? The patients, which is absolutely right. And so when I fought them, what that precipitated was that they had to open their doors and listen to women. And so we had these massive public meetings, like you wouldn't have believed to be in these rooms. I mean, it was the most like incredible thing for me to, you know, be front row seat at this kind of advocacy. And, you know, women arranged for childcare, took off of work, flew across the country, showed up in a federal agency to talk about their most private, you know, um, struggles behind the closed doors of their bedroom in order to change it for all of us. And to the FDA's credit, they listened. They did open their doors. They had all of these public meetings and they assembled a um, scientific body of 26 people to come in and vote, um, ultimately on the data. And when we had what I call a fair day in court, uh, when we were really just talking about the science, they voted overwhelmingly to approve the drug. So what happens next? Because I, I'm, I'm struck... Obviously, we're talking about uh, psychosocial storytelling and, yes. and and sort of subconscious bias and all of these things. What's the actual technical process of beginning to create a drug? And then when you get voted in by the FDA, when the scientists yes. say this absolutely meets the need, 
then how do you make it? Like, like what's yeah. the technical <laughs> side of, of oh, it's making cr- medication? It's- Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. So this has been in development for so many years. The science was first innovated in Germany. We're we're talking, you know, we're 18 years in or something at this point. Um, When I took it on, we already had a supply chain built and all of that um, for this unique, it's it's a one of a kind. So it's the only medication of its kind. Um, It actually was early days. You mentioned this earlier because it works on, you know, brain chemicals. Drug discovery is, is interesting. I mean, we're living it in a COVID era right now where we're looking at medications that had other purposes and we're seeing if they could be repurposed. So often the path that you start down may not be where you end up with the drug um, in the lab. So this was actually being looked at as a mood drug. Um, and when you give women or any anyone antidepressants, the number one side effect is it it kills your sex drive. It's actually because of what it's doing on the serotonin receptors, it's killing your sex drive. It's causing a lot of inhibition. And so, so much so that in drug trials, you're required to administer a scale to see how much you're killing your sex drive. So with Addy, that scale was administered early day clinical trials and all the scores went the other way. So it had this pro-sexual effect. And at that moment in time, they changed the course of study and looked at it in this condition because it's not like we haven't known about this condition. It's been in the medical literature since 1977. Low libido. This HSDD. We have known about it. HSDD. It has been in the manuals. There have been a diagnostic code for it. We just didn't ever have any solutions for it. Um, So, you know, just the the history of it is really quite fascinating um, that we've known about it for so long, but turned a blind eye. What does HSDD stand for? Hypo, so hypo, low, active, sexual desire disorder. Mm. It's like the same type of classification as erectile dysfunction is for men or, or you know, the other kind of terms. Got it. So you identify this, this drug. This is coming out of Germany. You, yes. you, you make Addy, which is what yes. the medication is called. It is, yeah. And you have your day in court. You win <laughs> with the FDA which was years in the making. I sound, it sounds like it came overnight. Yeah. I mean, from the point of, you know, the moment in time Six that years, I that's a long disputed time. them, like that I was a sm- we were a tiny little company. Mm. We were, you know, a, a band of sort of scientists who were hellbound and determined to change the conversation about women's sexuality forever. And when we got the turn down, I don't have much recourse as a company. And can you imagine, like I'd already gone out to raise money to do something that no big company would do. Hmm. And now I've got to turn down and I've got to turn back around and hold my hand out and ask people to bet on me to see it through. That was really rocky roads um, to get there. But when we finally got our our day in court um, and the world knew that the FDA would approve us, when they get this recommendation from a scientific committee, they take it under advisement. So it doesn't mean that they go, okay, you're approved. They take a few more months, make you sweat it uh, for a little bit. But this world had been signaled they were going to approve it. And then big companies uh, came knocking. They came to my doorstep and said, you're going to actually get done what none of us got done. And we want to march it across the globe and make it affordable and give it to everybody. And so two days after the drug was approved, I actually sold it. And who did you sell it to? Valiant. Was and their name. That's a big pharmaceutical yep. company. Big company, yeah. Mm. And then I, I sold it for a billion dollars up front. Wow. Um, was a, there were 35 of us there. 
We were so excited. And let me tell you why I chose them because there were other suitors because they were going to keep the team. And I knew that's what mattered the most is that they were so deeply committed to why we were doing this. Nobody set out to create a blockbuster drug. We set out to basically open the floodgates and actually have many more drugs come forward for women because patients are best served with options. I mean, if men get 26, we should. Um, so when, I, when they were going to keep the team, and I guess as these sad stories go uh, with startups, um, they got rid of me in about, I was maybe two months after the deal closed and they got rid of my entire team in three. And they shelved the drug. So they told you they were going to keep your team and get this drug to women across the world. Yes. They let your whole team go and they put the drug on a shelf, which is in like in my industry, what happens sometimes is you'll see um, like a bidding war or something for a property to make, you know, movies or TV But what'll happen is it'll get bought by a big studio who thinks it's actually going to compete with something they already have in development. So they'll buy it just so they can sit on it and essentially kill Mm -hmm. the story so that it doesn't compete with their other story. There wasn't even another drug that was competing with this that that Valiant owned. They just bought your medication and put it on the shelf because... They, you know, they were, they went through their own business turmoil. They fired the CEO who was there at the time of the acquisition. Um, And I think what they had done is they had taken away what is the most important thing in any business. And that's the people who care about the mission. Mm. And so here was a drug in a brand new space that requires, you know, a level of conviction and courage Mm -hmm. um, to go out into a marketplace with. They had no champions. And so, meh. It just, and I, I had to sit on the sidelines and, and cry it out. Mm. Cry, I mean, truly cry it out at the beginning. And I thought, there is no way we fought this hard for women to finally have the choice. You know, my position is take it or don't take it. I don't care, but by God, you deserve the choice to take it if you want it at any point in your life. And, um, and so I had to like, you know, sort of pick myself up um, by my bootstraps and say, come on, like you're better than this, Cindy, go get it. And I got their new CEO to sit down with me. Um, he was two weeks into the job and I said, give it back. And he was like, what? <laughs> he, he thought, you know, who's this crazy woman in pink um, that's asking me for this drug back? We paid a lot of money for this and, you know, we'll figure it out at some point. And I was just relentless in going back and thankfully had written a contract where they had agreed to not incredible, you know, conditions, but really reasonable conditions of how much money they'd spend on education. Um, you know, education with the OBGYN community, the basic sort of 101s, if you will, of bringing a first-in-class, first-in-category um, drug to market. And because they weren't meeting any of those, and when they um, wouldn't listen to the give it back, I sued them um, for breach of contract. And in exchange for dropping that lawsuit, they gave me the product back. And now we launched it. (laughs) Incredible. Incredible. And it it does, it requires a relentless dedication. Yeah. And And that's you were relentless. relentless. Dedication is like, I'm in my lifetime 
I'm going to see this conversation change. Mm. I'm going to see the shame and the stigma lift. And I'm going to hopefully, you know, have played some part in small part in just letting women know they deserve to advocate for themselves on something that is so fundamental to how we move through this world. Currently, you know, to your point, you're, you're 18 years into this. It took six years to get Addy approved by the FDA, not without a fight, which strikes me because I, I just keep doing the math. Six months for Viagra, six years for Addy. I'm like, wow, 12 times as long to get one drug for women. Interesting. Okay. One. So there's 26 at market for men. Is Addy still the only drug nope, for women? one more has come. One more has come, which wow. is great. It's, it's okay. People call me today. They're like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm thrilled. Like I'm doing jumping jacks because this is how it starts to change. Like Mm -hmm. there was no, when we broke the uh, door down, we hoped many others would come. And what I was sad about, honestly, is if I look back, the R and D is pitiful. And the reason that the R and D is pitiful, this is the, this is the dirty little secret. And and by R and D, just for the listeners, you mean so the money that goes into research and development around women's sexual health, you're saying is yes. terrible. It, let me be more broad around women's health. So let me scare you with the stat. 4%, 4% of research dollars go to women's health. I'm sorry, what? 4 2% of dollars go to prostate cancer alone. And I'm not taking away from pressing here, but just consider that fact for a second. 4%. Here is the dirty little secret. It's not that companies don't see opportunity, but here's what they know. The path will be longer and the hurdles will be higher. Why? When it comes to women's health, because of this, again, real ability to be dismissive of those conditions that uniquely affect women and to solve them with the pat on the shoulder and the have a glass of wine. And it really happens more than any of us should tolerate. Wow. So what do we do? Because I I imagine that everyone listening feels the way I feel right now, which is nauseous and angry. How do those of us who don't run enormous pharmaceutical companies? uh, Tiny, but truly. Okay. I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, you made a billion dollars. I'm going to, I, to me, you are enormous, but you know, yes, you're right. In comparison, you're, you're small and sharp and, and all of those things that make you so adept at making change. But what can most of us do to advocate for better spending on research and development for women's health on, on, better representation of our health, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's at drug companies or in government, what do you, what do you, what do you identify as a path for advocacy? So there's a few things. Um, One is don't allow healthcare to be a great mystery. It's really not so mysterious. It's about um, you showing up and demanding better for yourself and be asking questions to your point. Like at the very simplest, what can I do? I would say to everybody, walk into the room and you know, if you're not getting your answer, go somewhere else. That's one in a very basic way. Two is share these stories mm. because I think because we see healthcare is sort of complicated and I don't get all of these you know, nuances, um, we tend to not listen. And I think with Addie in particular, here's my hope 
um, you know, it's about sex and therefore people will often listen. But I think the takeaway and the eye opening at the end of it is we've got a real problem in women's health in general, and we should be concerned about that collectively. Um, and again, demand better in terms of watching these things more closely as they go through the process so that we are sure that there's an even playing field, Mm. right? From a regulatory perspective, it's science. There should be an even playing field in a similar process, whether I'm addressing something for men or for women. Mm. And we got to be loud about that. Um, And then I think, yeah, I I mean, mean, those are two two of the things. Mm. How do you think that we get more women into positions where they are making these decisions? Does, does yeah. this require more women to pursue yes. science, government? Please. What What is it? Please. You yeah. know, I'll tell you. So I thank you for saying that because that was my third and I'd lost my, my train of thought. This <laughs> is the most important one. Sophia got me to it. And that is, I'm told every day, and I know you will appreciate this from friends. They're like, ew, you're in pharma? Because let's be honest. Like if we look at the industry, we think of big pharma. Um, it's certainly got reputational issues. And um, we all sort of hate pharma in the light of day, but we love them in the dark of night if our kids are sick. So we should, from a perspective of the industry and what does the capacity do, it's huge. In this moment in COVID, we're all looking to this industry for innovation. So what I, my answer to that and friends who you know tease me about it and being in an industry that they don't particularly care for is, how do you solve it if not from within? And I want to encourage more people who say, ooh, like I would never be part of that. I would never be in that industry. Actually, we're going to be the crowd who changes it. So you got to run toward it. Yeah, come and in and disrupt it. Please. That's, I mean, that's so important. And I do feel like we shy away from it because we think that it's um, sort of unsavory. Uh, and I think that we've got to actually run toward it. There's a great piece, an opinion piece that was written um, in the Washington Times a few months ago. And it was about how pseudomedicine has taken over for, pseudoscience mm. has taken over for science, particularly for women. And what was great is it was written by a, um, a physician who said, and the fault is ours. Because we have left women out of the equation in medicine for so long. What did we think they were going to do other than to go and find, and I'm not talking about like alternatives. There is wonderful, you know, data, but if something is not evidence-based, we should demand better. We should be given evidence-based solutions. They may be pharmaceutical, they may be herbal, they may be whatever, but they're evidence-based. And that's really what we should demand that somebody cares enough to take the time to research it on our behalf. Where does the average consumer begin to find proof of evidence-based? Honestly, Google. I'm not even kidding. Hmm. You know, you should be really, I'm going to say, if it says, you know, these claims have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, that that is actually a flag to you that there's probably a lot of puffery going on there and a lot of overstatement of benefit you know, I look at some of these things that have come onto the market. We, we laugh all the time. There's a, there's a product sold at Walmart called Live in Libido Loca. And my team laughs about it all the time. And it's, you know, like tree bark that's going to solve it. You know, 
no, there's no like real clinical studies that are placebo controlled. And you can really kind of find that online if you do some homework on studies um, that are really demonstrating like statistically significant improvement on outcomes. And don't buy the other. Mm. Be cautious about that. Yeah, be very cautious. And especially for women, take a few moments to do a little bit of research on what it is you're hearing versus what the science says. Totally. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, do have a provocative relationship with whoever your trusted, like, healthcare provider is. You know, do go in and ask all of these questions. We have a, we work behind the scenes, obviously, in, um, with, you know, the medical establishment. And, for them, I look at a world in which if a woman is asked about sex, she's really asked three questions. She's asked, are you sexually active? Do you want birth control? And do you want to be tested for STIs, STDs? What if we would add one question and say, and are you satisfied? Mm. It's ever so simple. And yet we're working so hard to just include this in the sort of health inventory, you know, women's wellness exam. Because if we would ask her that, it's not just that we would be addressing, you know, libido issues or other, it's that, again, we would be giving that permission to discuss that would reveal so much more of what's going on for them, um, again, behind closed doors that they're not talking about. Mm. So we're, I'm going to take, it's going to take me 10 years to get that added. So in the next decade, I need everybody listening to ask themselves to say, like, why has nobody ever asked me that question? I'm going to walk in and talk about it and I'm going to bring it up and I deserve to bring it up if I'm dissatisfied with anything that's going on. Bring it up with your healthcare provider. Mm-hmm. If your doctor doesn't ask you the question, start the conversation yourself. Yeah. Mm. So uh, it makes me curious because when I think about your career path and I think about, the, I sort of envision you like, in this pink safari suit, like macheteing <laughs> through, you know, yeah. the thick jungle because you're, you're, wait, you're really forging a new path. You're cutting a new path. And you do, you're doing that in healthcare. You're doing that with this medication, with this conversation, but you're also doing it as an advisor. You're doing it as a businesswoman. You started an organization called The Pink Ceiling, Yes. And I would love for you to tell listeners, uh, first of all, I suppose to explain the name and then, and then tell them what you do. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's absolutely a glass ceiling. That was the ceiling that we wanted to shatter in sexuality for women. Mine happens to be colored pink, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in my world. And I think there are many pink ceilings that still exist. Um, there are, you know, all of these rules, unwritten rules in life right? And I think there's rules of law and order that we have to abide by. And then there's all these unwritten rules of which I think women are subject to many more. And we got to figure out how we sort of break them together because they make no sense. And so the pink ceiling was my money where my mouth was. During that time when I told you I was sort of curled up in the corner, you know, crying it out because my company had been bought and then they weren't, none of what I had imagined for my baby was being realized. um, I thought, your responsibility to just go out and help other people get there so this doesn't happen to them. And I knew my best work would be reaching my hand back and getting other women there faster than I got there myself because I'd stepped on a ton of the landmines. And so my own, it's my own money. It's not a fund. 
it's my money. Um, and I invest in true disruption. So I'm disrupting not only in healthcare, things that we want to see in this world, that women want to see in this world, but truly disruptors in terms of these extraordinary founders who, like me, show up you know, in Silicon Valley and get laughed out of the room for their idea. And so I'm, I hope that we'll also disrupt everybody's um, picture in their mind of who has the next billion dollar idea. Because that's a real problem that, you know, part, we don't get solutions because we don't, we don't fund them. We don't take them seriously. Um, we cannot be at a place where we actually celebrate that we're at 2.9% of all venture funding goes to women. What? 50% of the population has like less than 3% of the good ideas. Ridiculous. Um, so that's what I do. I invest my own money and I ride side saddle with them um, to the finish line. So it's a lot more about rolling my sleeves up, getting into the business. We're highly selective about who we, we take in because we're really going to go the, the distance with them. It's not just like, oh, nice, great. I'm writing you a check. Good luck. Um, it's very active yeah, venture you're, building. You're really incubating these businesses. Yeah. What do you the look pink, for? Pinkubating. Pinkubating. I love that. Pinkubating. We call it the pinkubator. It's, you need to come visit. It's so great. I can't wait, honestly, when, when these when we're allowed to be in the same space, I'll, I'll be the first person yes. at your door. What are, you, what are you looking for in the companies that you invest in? I, you know, I am, um, I'm looking for true firsts. Firsts in a category um, that, you know, opens a category for others to come forward. And mm-hmm. honestly, often um, catalyst in social conversations that I think we need to be having. That's what makes, lights my fire. yeah. Same. God. And and that's part of what I love about this is just being able to have this conversation. Yeah. I like, I like thinking I about listeners, you know, in their cars or on a walk with their, you know, earbuds in listening to us yeah, have this conversation and, and then thinking about how they can have this conversation in their own space. Absolutely. I know it's the, it's the multiplier effect, right? You hear it and share it. And that's the best part. That's, I mean, that's from the pink ceiling perspective, even, you know, the, the coolest thing I hope to come out of it is the multiplier effect of ownership. I've gotten to an outcome that has allowed me this ability to help others get to an outcome. And I expect when they get there, they'll help the next get to the outcome and so on and so forth. And you suddenly have a, you know, this incredible army um, that has come out of this and really built um, a new standard of who we bet on. Yeah. And we do have to do it together and we do have to do it mm-hmm. by having these conversations, by taking up the space, realizing yeah. that we deserve to, realizing that yes. we need to be in those rooms, whether it's as scientists at the FDA or as yeah. innovators in the medical industry or the pharmaceutical industry, yeah. we we need to wrest some of the control if we want to yeah, create yeah. a better and braver world. For sure. Mm. For sure. What do you think has been the biggest lesson that you've learned on this path so far? You know, the, the best lesson is, I think as scary as it is to take the road less traveled, you are going to be delighted by who comes and walks beside you. And that's the coolest part to me. Like, you know, we were, I was this tiny, nobody ever heard of my business or anything else. And when this happened, 
And I started asking critical questions when I had the audacity, if you will, to take on the FDA. All of a sudden, women's rights leaders, women's health leaders started coming to meetings. In fact, 10 organizations got a bus and went, demanded a meeting with the FDA. I would have killed to have been in that meeting. Of course, I wasn't. I learned about it you know, after the fact. But they said, help us understand how we're looking at an equation in which there are 26 times we looked at risks and benefits for men and then turned over the decision to men and their provider. But not once have we done that for women. And you know that's an important piece. No medication is a panacea. Medications have risks. They have benefits. It's the responsibility to characterize those. But then really isn't it all of our responsibility to turn over the decision to the individual who's affected Mm -hmm. and then get to decide. And we learned that lesson so well in the AIDS movement where, you know, at the very infancy of medications um, for AIDS, they were really risky. Mm -hmm. And it took the patients saying who weren't getting access to them, hey, Mm -hmm. the hell with you. This is my decision. I will take that risk for the possibility of that benefit. Mm-hmm. And you know that's the truth of any great innovation is the people affected should be at the heart of it. Yes. And we need to have seats at the table where the decisions yes. are made. So for that sure. so that the next creator doesn't run into some of the feedback that you did. One thing that's always stuck in my mind since you and I had our first conversation about this uh, over a dinner table was that there was a powerfully elected official, a powerful elected official who, Mm -hmm. when you presented uh, what you guys had been up to, what you had created, said to you, and I quote, what do Mm -hmm. we need a bunch of horny women running around for? Yes. The fact that that could be a question from someone who's elected to represent a constituency, which is 51% female. Yeah is to me more evidence of why we need to be in positions of power. Those are not appropriate questions. Uh, diminishing, right. diminishing our experience, which by the way, I look at a guy like that and I think, wow, you must be, you must be miserable for your wife to have sex <laughs> with you. Right. God, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I bet that poor woman's been faking it your whole marriage. But <laughs> I, I really just think of the, just how cavalierly rude and dismissive yes. that was. Dismissive. Dismissive. Dismissive mm-hmm. of our right. Mm-hmm. Of, mm-hmm. of dismissive of of our right to pleasure, dismissive a uh, dismissive of the reality that we deserve better. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. only in pleasure, but in healthcare. And for sure. And so I just think about how, to your point, if if we build this army if we really take up space, yeah, those kinds of questions won't be getting asked anymore. You're, there's no stopping us. It's really true. I, you would have, um, you know, I would sit in meetings and my skin would crawl with the things that were said. And, and this includes public meetings. And I would sit in an audience and have women, you know, who took a public microphone and talked about how, you know, they had lost their marriage over this, that they had lost their sense of self. And then to hear the sort of what was said back to them. And that was not that long ago. 
And it, it's so, to your point, dismissive. And it was, un- I've always been an outlier sort of in my, in my field. And there aren't a lot of women, unfortunately, to your point, we got to solve this problem. 3% of healthcare companies are run by women. That's ridiculous. And, um, and, you know, I had faced sort of the classical challenges of being the woman in a man's world. But to sit in that audience and watch that on a much bigger scale to sort of all women, that, that really is what informed the work of the Pink Ceiling too. That really did ignite me on a, on a next level to just keep showing up, um, you know, and like you said, building the army so that you get to a place of power that's unstoppable. Mm, I love that. What advice would you offer to listeners, you know, to, to the women who are listening in. And I'm sure to, uh, I always think of my male listeners. I'm like, I just classify them as cool allies, obviously, because yeah. they're here. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah. So it's really to anyone who's listening, who might have their own idea, who, who might want to disrupt, but for folks who are stuck at an institution or a company, mm-hmm. do you have advice for them on how to break out or, or try to create something on their own? Yeah. Find me. Find the, the Cindy. First of all, DM me. I'd love to hear. But beyond that, honestly, what I would say is um, if you see possibility where other people see limitation, pursue it. No one can take away where you have already come from. So I know we get, we get real practical about, oh, but I can't, I can't leave this job. I can't do any. You know what? Like you can always go back. And so what I would say is take the shot make the move, build your confidence that you can do it by getting into the room with um, you know, other people who have done it. And I would tell you today, that's as easy as this kind of social connection, right? They can, you can listen into people on podcasts. You can DM them after you hear them. You can, once we're all out of quarantine, be able to go into you know, um, uh, co-working spaces in your area with entrepreneur nights. And if you'll just start getting in that room and talking about your idea, it can ignite. And you'll be surprised that if you just ask for help, how many people will help you get there? We're scared to ask for help. And yet, actually, um, if you just ask, again, I think so many people will say, well, I'll help you with that. We'll introduce you to this person. Mm-hmm. And you're on your way. I knew I, I was like, I had no ability to raise money. When I, start, I, I wanted to start my own business, but I had nobody in my contact list. Like I didn't have a rich uncle. I didn't have that much in my own savings. I mean, I was willing to, you know, rack up all my debt on my credit card um, and have the companies, you know, calling me and me hide in the corner. But it really was about making a decision. Here's how I started. I decided that if I could get to this one guy who had been in healthcare banking, that he would open the universe to me. And I just relentlessly found my way to get in the room. And when I got in the room with him, I said, please introduce me to two of your friends. And when I got in the room with two of his friends, I said, please introduce me to four of your friends. And so it grew. And I think it's as simple as just, you gotta be so determined. You just keep showing up and telling everybody what you wanna do. My favorite question. Oh, okay. The show's called Work in Progress. And when you hear the phrase, I'm curious what comes to mind for you in your life, whether it's personal or professional or political, anything. What what feels like the work in progress that you've got in your hands right now? I sort of, my work in progress is always the personal piece. 
you know, how am I showing up and, and being my best self? Um, which I think is a challenge, you know, for all of us every single day to sort of evaluate, like, am I doing enough? Am I, you know, doing what I meant to be doing? Um, and that, you know, my, my professional and personal is so muddled because many years ago I accepted that I love what I do so much. It's like my work is my hobby. My hobby is my work. <laughs> um, and on the professional front, I think for me, the work in progress is how do we get to a place where we normalize this conversation? Like, how do I get to that place and feel like I've not let anybody down? Through this whole, when I started this, you know, I told you at the beginning, I just listened to women. I think what that, what saved me in that, um, in all the darkest times when it would have been much easier to give up, is that I was acutely aware that my giving up would be letting them down. And so that's my work in progress is always like, am I doing my best and am I letting anybody down? That feels like a really excellent check-in. I've been Mm -hmm. thinking a lot lately about how we can check in with ourselves. Yeah. How we can run these checklists of how am I feeling and how am I doing and how am I advocating and how am I taking care of myself? And I love those questions as Mm -hmm. check-ins to just yeah. make sure you're keeping yourself on the path because when you're carving a new one, yeah, you got to make sure you're staying on it. Yeah, for sure. I, and my, my um, sort of true north has been the women who I've been fortunate enough that they shared my, their stories with me. And they've saved me in the worst moments uh, by reaching out. And they are what, keeps, what really keeps me going and has kept me focused on the fact of, you know, why I did it in the first place, mm. what it was all about. Mm. I feel lucky. I, I mean, I'm so lucky for that. I, to this day, you know, every day uh, women write me and share their, their personal stories. And that's a, that's like a huge privilege. Mm. I love that. Cindy, you're the freaking coolest. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're too sweet. Just thank you so you're much. The coolest. For... I love your advocacy. I love your heart. I love that you ask these questions. I love the the truth of we're all works in progress. And that what a boring day actually it would be if we woke up tomorrow and we thought like, ah, we figured it all out. I'm done. <laughs> right? Oh yeah. I got nothing. Man, nothing. I mean, that is like that's this whole, you know, experience. And I'm so grateful to you for the guests that you have on who I consume, you know, voraciously because I love this. I love, um, you know, hearing these stories motivates me. Thank you so much for that. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush and Sim Sarna. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish and our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. Thank you.